Sprouta opens up a world of collective expertise and unique solutions for organizations who have the drive to maximize their impact and want to do good work in the world. Sprouta gives you a new way to identify and solve your real challenges within people, performance, and culture. This is a Sprouta podcast. Hi, my name is Craig Foreman, also known as Culture Craig, and I'm a lead people scientist with CultureAmp, the world's top-ranked people and culture platform. I've always been driven by a genuine curiosity of people and have built a career around my personal mission to help the world work better by improving the places we work. In this podcast, we're amplifying the professional and personal stories of people in our industry who are passionate about making a difference and courageously delivering better experiences for humans at work. This is Humanity Works with me, Culture Craig. Three, two, one. Here we go! The daughter of a proud union man, Bridget Fairbank has had a varied and exciting career within human resources, spanning everything from mining to music to large multinationals like FedEx and PepsiCo. Driven by a purpose and strong sense of connection, Bridget is now in the public sector as the Chief People Officer for the Department of Communities and Justice, a big job supporting the critical work of 25,000 employees providing frontline services to some of the most vulnerable individuals, families, and communities in New South Wales. I just remember my dad saying that the best outcomes for everyone was through great relationships based on empathy and trust. And it sounds really, really simple. And when you think about any relationship, any relationship you have should be based on empathy and trust. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Craig. I'm really excited. It's my absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm really really excited about this conversation. As always, I like to start with a duo of introductions. So the first is, for those listening who might not know you, um, I like to say this is the professional introduction. How would you introduce yourself professionally? Uh, so I've been working in the human resources field for longer than I care to mention. Earlier in my career, I opened the first CD manufacturing plant in Australia. So that really dates me and, you know, how much, <laughs> how long away. I've been. Yeah, I know, I know. No more, C, no more CDs live streaming. So, I, look, I'm a passionate HR leader that's moved between, you know, working in HR and also being an operational leader. I love working in organisations. I love working with people but I think the really big thing is working with an organization with a sense of purpose and working with leaders and working on culture to make the organization the best it can be for the employees that work there and for customers that we deliver services to so I my my professional background look I've moved around I love moving around really different organizations so I started in industrial relations and I worked in steel manufacturing and mining Um, I did a fly-in, fly-out role for a while, which is really exciting, in a gold mine in Western Australia, lived in a shed for sort of two years, and that was an exciting part part of my career. Really went from there to I'm passionate about music, so I spent four or five years in the music industry working for Sony. But a really exciting time because I got I also got to sort of see a lot of artists. So I got to blend my passion for music and you know love for love for sort of HR, and from then worked for a series of multinationals. So I've been doing lots of travelling. Um, traveling around the world in 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 all of my roles, especially through Asia, 
and decided that I really wanted to be homebound for a while. My, my oldest son was doing his senior exams, that sort of thing. I came out of the private sector and entered the government sector. And from there, I've spent the last three years working in human services. So I've, I've had this great, great career, which what wasn't necessarily planned, but really moving from place to place because of exciting people, exciting purposes and exciting opportunities and lots of risk taking. I jumped in and did lots of things I never thought I'd do, and I've and I've loved it, loved every minute of it. Wow. Well, I mean, there's so many angles and what a wealth of knowledge on top of the fact that you've done the, the private and the public, which I think is really unique. Uh, what's your current role at, in, in with New South Wales? Yeah, I'm the Chief People Officer for the Department of Communities and Justice. So I look after about 25,000 employees. We're part of a much broader organisation of 50,000 um, employees. And the public sector itself employs over 400,000 people in New South Wales. So it's it's the biggest employer in Australia and probably the biggest employer in Asia. So my my role is I lead a, a progressive sort of what, what we call the people and culture function, which support that 25,000, you know, every, all aspects of HR, but also pay a big role in the business. And in the business, we provide all sorts of services. So human services through uh, caretaking and support for vulnerable children and families, through to social housing, through to corrections, also the court system. And then there's a whole range of sort of policy um, areas that we look after as well. Everything from gender equity through to homelessness, domestic violence, whole range of different things. It's an, it's an exciting place. It's incredibly diverse, it's complex, and it's really challenging. I bet. And it sounds... Very dynamic. It is. The more I've it spoken is. to you and learned just about the the purview, it's 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 quite amazing, and it's it's such a large population. It is. Um, we're going to get into a lot of that. Okay. I like to ask the second question. Okay, that was your professional introduction. Yeah, sure. What about your Bridget introduction? Tell tell like if if people met you and what they wouldn't know from your your LinkedIn or from a professional bio, like how would you introduce yourself that way? Well, I'm pretty quirky, but I'm a big music head. So I, I actually started um, in, you know, a bit of a punk rocker, which most people when they meet me don't, yeah, yeah, don't don't necessarily um, get. I, I was in a band called the Squash Cockroaches and at the time it was through high school and we still get together once a year and play at a local pub, which is, you know, which is good fun. But I'm passionate about all types of music, but mainly hard rock. So, you know, I grew up with the Violent Femmes, The Cure, the Smiths, the Clash, love all of that sort of stuff. But now I've really sort of morphed into Foo Fighters, Pearl Jam, you know, that that sort of thing. So big music head, I drum, you know, which I love. And then everything from that to sort of tap dancing, you know, I do, I do that. I run. Um, so I love keeping fit, anything to do to sort of to sort of keep fit. And then on the flip side, I'm a mad sewer. So I'm also into quilting and embroidery, which, <laughs> you know, is such a contrast to, um, you know, the rest of my life. Um, punk rock? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Put down the drums, pick up the sewing machine. Yeah, pretty much. Bit of bit of everything. And I've got two kids. So oh, they, they certainly keep me um entertained and busy. So yeah, that's me. Later I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it back up, but sure. you know, I think we both probably share that that music in some way or another has really it, somehow impacted us on our journey yeah. and what it's meant to us as an art form. And it's been important in the last year, just with yeah. just with COVID. Music's been, been my link to a much broader community. But also, touch wood, we've just started to open up music festivals and concerts again in Australia. So the last two weekends I've been at live music, which is so invigorating because I've missed it so much. I am so jealous. It's been heartbreaking so not jealous. being able to go. So 
It's the thing I miss the most. I mean, oh, music's yeah. always been important to me. I also play. Oh, what do you play, Craig? I play guitar and I'm an acoustic, so. Oh, great. You know, I'll tell you what I've really missed. I don't think I quite appreciated the that creative outlet of yeah. playing with another person. Yes. And you just can't do it virtually. No, it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. And I go to live music too. And also I've been okay. I've managed that, but it, it will be a, it'll be a spiritual experience when I get back to start seeing some live music and just getting that that in me again. It was last weekend I saw Midnight Oil, who are a big Australian band. And to see them, and there was 30,000 at the at the festival. You were with 30,000 people yep. last weekend? Yep. It was, it was <laughs> just, it was, I mean, you had to sit down and you couldn't dance, but you know, that's okay. I survived that because seeing the oils were, it was just so re-energizing. I've missed it so much. I'm so, I'm so envious. Okay, I'm going to ask this. There's another music question coming later, but I'll ask uh, if you had to pick with one live music experience that was a pivotal one for you, what would it be? Uh, Foo Fighters. Yeah, Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters and seeing David Grohl and um, Taylor Hawkins, because I'm a drummer, right? So seeing them both on drums and doing a drum off was amazing. Loved it. Taylor's an incredible, incredible. drummer, but David's just yeah, he got, he's got such power behind him. Yeah, I love them both. Uh, I have a few, but the one that comes to mind for me, I got to see Prince one time at a smaller theater. It was like a 2,500 person, the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Wow. And it was it was kind of everything, right? Mm. It was the performance, the musicianship, the – he walked on stage and owned the audience for two and a half hours and walked off and everybody was just hanging like, on, the, on, the, on the edge of their seat. So, so superbly it talented. It was a heartbreaking year, you know, when we lost Prince yeah, and we lost David Bowie. Because I, I admire both of them so so much, um, so talented in many ways. Is there a story early in your yeah. life yeah. that is number one a unique story, but number two connects you? It was the beginning, and you knew even if you didn't know yeah. it then that this was the work you'd be doing. That that that, that you know the kind of first piece. So my, my, my dad is a labor organizer, a union organizer, and it's been a passionate, you know, advocate of um, employee rights his, his whole entire life. And my first memory is 1974, I'm four years old. Gough Whitlam, who was our prime minister back then, had just been sacked by the attorney general in combination with the UK. It was highly controversial. And there were marches all over Australia against this. And I remember sitting on my dad's shoulders and being part of that, you know, that that demonstration um, and that march. And then many times after that, as I, as I grew up, you know, um, sitting on picket lines and a whole range of stuff with my dad, who worked in the steel industry. And so I, I don't think what, um, <laughs> what, what he was quite surprised at those was when I took a job um, with the same steel company, but what he called on the other side. You crossed over. Yeah, yeah. He was most uh, devastated. Didn't speak to me for six months because he felt I'd betrayed the whole cause by, you know, taking on an industrial relations role with BHP, but with the employer and not with the union. And we've been fighting ever since, which is always good fun because we're on opposite opposite ends of um, the philosophy. It's good spirited. Oh, big time, big time. But it did get to the point where my mum said, it's time for you to move out now, right? It's too much. It's time for, it's time for you to live somewhere you're else. You're not union, you're out. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> oh my gosh, you went, you went management. You can afford your own rent. 
got, yeah, that's right. I got really passionate about, you know, industrial relations and the importance of relationships between employers and employees and what that could mean for organisations. And that's really, that got me, really got me sort of into my degree and, and into the, you know, steel industry. I lived in a regional area. It was the biggest employer at the time. So it was the, it was the right place to start. But yeah, it, it's always been fascinating for me. Um, and that's part of what I do. How has that how has that impacted your work? You know, you're, you're growing up with your dad as a union, yeah, a union guy, um, clearly passionate about it. And then you you did this, but now there you are on the other side, so to speak, air quotes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. How have you taken that with you, and how has that impacted the work yeah. that you do, and how you see the world, especially because you've worked in union environments, which is something I've had a lot less experience, yeah. experience with. Yeah. Um, yeah, how, how do you take that with you and how has that impacted your work? I just remember my dad saying that the best outcomes for everyone was through great relationships based on empathy and trust. And it sounds really, really simple. And when you think about any relationship, any relationship you have should be based on empathy and trust. I mean, they should be the underlying foundations. So when I'm representing um, a company, and, and I think about um, when I worked in the, in, in the airline industry with the Transport Workers Union, it's about understanding all perspectives, all options, and building those really important relationships, not only with your employees, people of influence, unions. And it's it's interesting, but when I was in, you know, sort of airlines, you know, the transport workers, they're a fairly um, assertive union, uh, you know, lots of strike action. In fact, we had lots of really interesting times. But the organiser that, that I worked with really closely, we had a great relationship. Together we worked on the best or, you know, the best outcomes, not only for the organisation, but also for employees, because it has to be mutual benefit. And that's what we really work towards. And he's someone I still keep in touch now. In fact, he's become a bit of a mentor you know around some of those matters and someone that I go back to and tic-tac but yeah empathy and trust it really drove drove that home for me and that's what's important were there ever situations where it was contentious and it was challenging to hold empathy absolutely because you're also representing you know the employer and there's a commercial um, situation that, that that you're trying to deliver or a commercial outcome that you're also trying to you know trying to deliver so you come up against you know that natural tension between a great outcome from all the commercial outcome and you've got to find you've got to find that middle ground and you can't always deliver on something that that suits everyone but you have to deliver the best thing that you can find so yeah that that tension is there all of the time and it's really about yeah. being open and transparent about this is what I can do they, these are the parameters for me that openness and transparency is you know really important because that's the best way to sort of influence the outcome and keep the relationship intact when you speak about empathy, it's a topic that came on my radar in a deeper way a few years back. How would you, how do you define or think about empathy? It's really around understanding all of the perspectives because that is really the best way to manage people's expectations, you know, to, to manage the, the influencing, the negotiation process, whatever it might be, but continuing to test back on, so where are we at now? You know, what are we thinking? You know, what, you know, how are you feeling at this point in time? And it's really interesting because in all of my industrial relations or in all of my industrial interactions, I, I talk about, you know, the what, the how and the why and really clear on, so how does this make you feel? And, and to start with unions are like, why do you care how it makes you feel? And I went, because that's important. 
right? It's not a just a, it's not about what you do. I have to make sure that you still got that emotional link also to the organisation. So it's important that we understand all of those perspectives and what you're thinking, you know, what you're doing and how you're feeling is is certainly part of part of that. So I'm hearing you talk about empathy and how you work, but I'm sure you deal with leaders who you sense are struggling with that uh, or challenged with that or only want to see something from their own perspective. How do you support others to have empathy, especially as, as we're talking to leaders and managers? It's a great question. <laughs> and look, it's it, it's really difficult because a lot I've, I've had leaders say to me, can I go on a training course to help me, you know, figure out this empathy thing? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's not, it's not really a, it's not something you can train in, but it is something that you can develop and you can learn. You, you've got, you've got a whole sort of range of different situations. So for some where it's been, they've just been particularly fixated on a particular mindset or point of view. It's about unpacking that. It's about unpacking that and understanding me, understanding using my empathy where they're absolutely coming from but then it's also about unpacking all of the other perspectives with them and helping them get into mm-hmm. the granular detail about where other people are coming from and it's looking for that common ground because what you'll find in a lot of cases there's overlap and common ground i find getting into the granular detail is always a really good way you know if you unpack it and then and then repack it again is a really good way because you'll find that by the time you repack it it looks different to what you started with which is which is a great way to sort of work with a you know with a leader, and then you get leaders who just go, I don't care, and so it's really about trying to find that emotional connection as to well, why the hell should I bother trying to understand someone else's perspective? Mm. I try and bring it back to something personal for them, you know, whether it's um, something in their family or you know something situational that I know that they've been through, where do you mean? It, they can see it's been important for them to try and, you know, um, unwind and sort of understand that other person's perspective. But you've you've got to try and find the why for them. Why is it important, you know, for them to empathize and unpack it? It's not always successful. No, it's, I mean, none of the, none of this is always successful, right? I mean, that's why if it was that easy, we'd be in a different industry. Absolutely Um, right. This is people and we're complex. Yeah. you know, I was thinking when I was talking to you, it's what would I say to that? And I think you, you hit a lot of that is how can we tie it back to that individual and kind of that reflection and asking really good questions. And yep. I thought of the story, I was in this workshop mm-hmm. and one of the attendees was this kind of high power. He'd come up through finance, clearly successful and now was running businesses. And at a point in the workshop, he got very distracted and he was up and down and the facilitator said, you know, what, what's, what's going on? Let's just call him Rick. What's going on, Rick? He said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm distracted, but you know, one of my companies, we've been working for two months to close this deal to get this new CEO. And, you know, he was going to do it in the last minute. He said he got a better offer and he pulled the plug and he was kind of all flustered and mm. he was explaining this. And then it hit me and I asked him the question. I said, I said, Rick, when was the last time you leveraged a position to like negotiate and like get the best situation for you? Mm. And it just, he just dropped. He was kind of like, there he was so frustrated yeah. with this power play this yeah. other person was doing. And it was like, when was the last time you did this? And he just, you could tell, he just, it, it clicked. He's like, oh, I do this all the time. But he was so angry yeah. <laughs> at this other person for doing the same thing. Yeah. So I think, but I think that's a great, when yeah. you were talking, it was a great story of reflecting of how we can bring it back to. Definitely flipping it back. Flipping it back so they can make it yeah. personal. So, oh, that person's doing what I do. Okay. doesn't mean it's any better. Yeah, the outcome's any right. better, but it humanized the situation for him. It, it, look, it really does and, and helps with the perspective. Right. It creates the frame for perspective, which perhaps they didn't have before. Okay. So that was the transition into leadership and management. And I specifically am asking it that way. So let's start with that. 
the difference between, in your opinion, between leadership and management? I've worked with a lot of a lot of managers, but I haven't worked with a lot of great leaders. Mm. So th- this is this is the interesting, I think, um, transition for you know for people. And I go back to leadership is about is not about being in charge. It's a great Simon Simon Sinek, who I'm a big fan. It's um it's it's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. Um, and this is this is the fine line that when I'm coaching, because I do a lot of coaching, that when I'm trying to help managers morph into leaders, it's that realization and that tipping point that they're no longer just managing a transaction or a process, that they're actually caring about a group of people, leading a group of people, you know, to deliver an outcome. And it's how they do that as a leader. And I always talk about sort of this, this frame that I think about leaders, leaders start to think about when do I need to be in front of the team and really pull the team forward? When do I actually step back and partner and walk beside the team to support them? And when's the tipping point when I can actually, you know, um, lead from behind and support the team as they take the lead? And it's really that perspective and that and that process of letting the team evolve and then agilely knowing when you've got to jump in front, jump to the side and jump behind because it's situational and contextual. You, you've got to be able to sort of agilely move and do that. And you could really only do that through that connection and understanding and when you care about the team. And that for me is when you stop being a manager and you start being a leader. Ooh, interesting. I like that. You, you talk about leading from front and from behind, and that's something I've, I've been thinking more and more about over the years. And I, yeah. I think it's really interesting, too, because look at the movies. I mean, I think about William Wallace or all the big, you know, the fight movies. Yeah, yeah. And the leader is the fr- in the front of the pack of the horses right into the middle. And I think to myself, is that really like I was in the military, too. Generals are yeah, never. Right. OK, that's not where they lead. No. from. No, they're they above. They're watching the battlefield. They're seeing what's happening. Yep. They're moving the pieces. But. We we sell this message of the leader is the first one like, out. Like, what good would that leader be? I guarantee the first person riding into another line of of horses is the first one dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, uh, generally. G- generally, well, not in the movies. If you watch Game of Thrones, they were very dead. But just interesting and just questioning kind of the stories that we tell ourselves about leadership and really the reality mm-hmm. and this idea that a strong leader can leave from behind almost quietly. Or some people have said sometimes the best yeah. leader is the one you don't you don't know who the leader is. I 100% agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, the person who's able to let their team shine and let individuals within their team step up and take the lead as they come from behind and support them, that is, that that's when you know you've made it as a leader. Because I think that sense of intuitiveness and knowing when to step back and let others take the lead. That's it. That's the real beauty important. of leadership. Yeah, it is. And it's it not is. that that dominant masculine go jump on the sword, but it's more of a caring and taking care and elevating others, uh, which is just as important in that balance. If you were talking to a junior person coming up right now or or working with a team and said, look, how do I develop my manager to to become, build more leadership into my management? What are some tips or things you'd share with that person to support them to, to help with that transition in their teams? 
so and I'm and look I'm coaching um, a young manager right you know right now who's who's at the beginning of their journey and and lots of great great potential because um, what they bring to the table is they, they care so the first thing um, we're doing is helping them develop those really deep relationships with their with, with their team members that that's really key understanding the whole person and not just what they're there to do at work having that awareness and being able to have those much deeper conversations um, means that you can motivate, inspire, and really quickly create that sense of belonging within the team, which is such an important cultural concept. But it also helps you connect them to purpose. And and that's probably the second thing, being really, really clear about the purpose of the team, the purpose of what you're doing, and making sure everyone understands, you know, their their role in that and continuously linking that and and talking about that um, on an ongoing basis. And, and look, I think the third thing, being really clear on expectations and performance and using continuous feedback to be able to support the person. So they're really clear. You've got those deep relationships so you can have open and honest conversations. They're clear about purpose and their role in that. And you're having those continuous conversations to validate, keep people on track, giving feedback and really being um, comfortable with the team member being able to come to you and question and you know have those really honest and transparent conversations I think I think that those are three really key elements when when you're first starting out as a manager and they're good building blocks for leadership yeah critical and those are such great pieces of advice and you mentioned Simon uh Sinek and you talked about purpose so that idea of start with why which I really think is is just that it's something that I've always been inspired at culture ramp I've been very inspired by that because I often say look our what is our tools and they're wonderful Mm -hmm. But our why is this deeper belief that we can impact and transform the workplace. And I know for me, at least, that's what inspires me to do the work that I do. The tools are great, but the why is even more compelling for me. And it's aligned with my why. So I go above and beyond. I do, you know, I just look for opportunities. And I think that, you know, just that idea of purpose mm. is really powerful for me uh, as well. And it's a great call back out to that work. If nobody's familiar with Simon Sinek, start with why. Look at his TED Talk, you know, start with why. It's you know, fabulous. But it's it's pretty powerful stuff. That's been transformative for me. It is. It is. Look, and I just think um, understanding why you're you're there. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I work in communities and justice. I mean, our why is really simply to empower people in our community to be, you know, to be the best that they can be. And it's really easy then to link what a caseworker does or what a, um, you know, corrective services officer does. And then what we're here to do as a HR function is to help our employees be the best that they can be so that they can support people in communities to be the best that they can be. So that that, that really yeah. simple why is something that um, can pull people together and make people do amazing things. There's a popular story in the States. Uh, JFK apparently was touring NASA and he came across a, a custodial worker mm-hmm. and he said, what do you do here? And he said, well, sir, I put, I put rockets into space. Love it. Right. He saw yeah. that. If I'm not cleaning yeah. this, you know, if this building's not clean, then people can't have a comfortable place yeah. to come to and they can't do their work and they can't. He connected his work all the way to the mission of NASA. Right. And I, I think that's such an important reminder, too, because people say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on. You know, they, they, we can, if with, with good leadership mm-hmm. and good conversations, mm-hmm. look at and have that conversation. How is your personal, how are you connected to this outcome of what we're doing here? And I think that 
especially the, the organizations of tomorrow are going to be more driven yeah. on that. It's, it's, it's really, it's really so. powerful. And, and I mean, I think when you look at the research, you know, it, it drives engagement, it drives belonging. It's the stickiness that keeps people in organizations mm-hmm. and delivering. And I think you mentioned it before, Craig, that, that whole above and beyond piece. Above and beyond. You don't think about, um, you don't restrict yourself. You really do. It, it creates that drive to, um, you know, to deliver and to deliver with people. But I, I like to talk about it as that cultural stickiness. It's really important. I really love this idea of cultural stickiness. For me, it brings up the power that a set of guiding principles, norms, and rituals, when adhered to and respected, can have in unifying and aligning groups of people towards a common goal. I also think that creating environments where people feel that they are part and accepted are hugely important ingredients to that stickiness. And with everything that's going on in the world, it's time to take a good look at these again and really unpack What do they mean and how can they be cultivated? And so I want to know where Bridget is on this journey. What are some of the big things she's been thinking about when it comes to creating inclusive and belonging organizations or cultures? Inclusiveness is about everyone has a place irrelevant of difference. And that's really important to me um, because it, again, it's that cultural stickiness that keeps people in the organization but keeps them delivering keeps them focused keeps them motivated keeps them engaged gluing people together is one of the most important things and i talked to my team about this in hr it's one of the most important things we can do that we it's one of the most important things we can enable and support within the whole organizational system is to support leaders to understand why an inclusive culture is so important, how it enables services and outcomes, you know, for our community um, and what they need to do as leaders to be able to ensure that everyone does feel that um, that, that sense of belonging. Now, look, it, 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 in saying that, it, it's not an easy thing to deliver because everyone has an, an individual, because you've got the organisational system and then you've got the individual and it's about trying to sort of marry up a whole range of individuals within an organisational system. So you have to be really agile. But I I bring it back to some simple things. It's about every conversation. It's about every conversation that you have with people every day and about making them feel heard, making them feel part of that conversation, part of that organisation. It is, again, linking everything they do, you know, back to that purpose. We're all here because of this why. So what and how you do things links completely, you know, sort of, um, you know, back to that. It's, it's about making sure that um, you're calling behaviour that, that isn't inclusive and that you really, you don't walk past a standard that, you know, culturally you're saying isn't compliant with your values or doesn't, you know, doesn't align with your values. You need to, you need to be, you need to have the courage to call that out. You need to intervene and you need to put a stop to it and talk about the sort of behaviour and the sort of culture that, that, that you're trying to build where, where it is inclusive. And I, and I think the important thing is inclusivity is, is not even just about individual differences. It's also about people having different ideas and different opinions. So it's embracing that. It's about, and this is why I love things like human-centred design and those sorts of approaches, because it's about pulling people together and working with people with different ideas and different perspectives to solve organisational, but also community issues. And that's something that mm-hmm. as a, you know, working in a government, I see working in, a, in the public sector, I see a lot more, probably more so than when I, that, than when I um, worked in the private sector, around working with community partners to really try and solve those big social issues like 
homelessness, like domestic violence. All of those things, I think, think are key to having an inclusive culture. Yeah. And something you've mentioned before, and you know, you work also part of your purview is, is the prison system. How is that? Like trying to, to drive that change or rethinking inside of a pot, you know, inside of an environment like that and a work environment yeah. like that. And it's, it's real and it's dangerous and it's systemic and all of that. Could you share a little more about that? It's a really interesting process. So one of our one of our key priorities as an organisation is how do we reduce the reoffending rates across New South Wales? If you look at the research and and, and you look at some of the insights, it's around. The biggest influence we can have is working with our incarcerated people around changing their mindset that when they leave the prison system, that they have other options that they can be successful, that they don't have to go back to a life of crime, that they that they can have a life and it can be very different. So this is about, again, and it comes back to some really, um, really simple things. It's about every conversation that a prison officer and other people that work in the system can have with that person. It's about um, language that, that you use with that person and tipping it from, you know, you're an inmate to you're, you're someone here working through a process, but what are you going to do next? So getting them thinking about the future. So really simple things like every conversation, working with our, you know, custodial officers around being aware of the impact of their conversations and, and the sorts of conversations they can have. The programs, you know, that we run with our um, inmates around getting them future focused, getting them planning about what they want to do next. And look, I really think connecting them with other parts of our system. So making sure that when they leave the prison system, that they're connected with family, that they have um, housing, that they have a home to go to, and hopefully that they have employment. And supporting them then post, you know, through our community sort of construct to make sure they've got the right support and the right services to maintain and to really implement that plan. So, I mean, it sounds really simple, but it's not because there's a lot, it's multidimensional. There's lots of things that impact on it, you know, the individual, their family, and there's lots of other issues, addiction, lots of different things. So the, the great work that the team are doing and, and that I'm just so privileged to be a part of is really around how do they change that mindset? And we've got to not only, to do that, we have to change our internal cultural mindset. And don't be wrong, we, we've got some amazing people that work in the system who already embrace that mindset. Sure. They become the informal influencers around actually our roles, not to just stand here and watch and guard. And don't get me wrong, safety and security is a big part of their role, but their role, they also have this incredible role to influence. And it's helping people understand. Yeah, they do you know, the why, why that's important, but how they can do it and what they can do. So it comes back to that why, what, and how again. You know, I worked, I worked in the, in the recognition and reward space. We mm. used to have a saying, like what gets recognized gets repeated. And yeah. I think what you just said about identifying these behaviors, first of all, being clear on the behaviors you want, because sometimes we recognize behaviors uh, subconsciously yes. and, you know, we're not really clear on what, what are we really recognizing and is it in line with our values? Mm. Um, do you have any thoughts around that as far as like how to scale that? Cause it's such a large system. So when you, have people that are really embodying it are there any tools or tricks that you leverage to help do what you just said about how do we how do we amplify that and yeah. 
you know, progress those behaviors through the organization? Yeah. So, so absolutely by being clear about, you know, what those behaviors are. We're clear about what those behaviors are. We have stories because I love this whole, the whole concept of storytelling, that that's such a great foundation for culture and the culture that you want to, you, you want to build. That story is told from the top down, but also bottom up as well. So people from the front line, not only leadership, but people from the front line, you know, telling those stories and the impact, um, you know, that they're, that they're having, that that's incredibly, incredibly key, you know, calling out the great outcomes so making making sure that we're linking you know th those behaviors and that change to you know actually to outcomes and the fact that you know it does impact on recidivism it does impact on reoffending rates so it, it, people can see that it has a clear link to you know what we're what we're trying to achieve but that storytelling is really key i love that bridget brings up the power of storytelling our brains are designed for and have evolved around telling stories, but there's also a unique duality in storytelling. Stories are how we teach one another, pass on information, and come together to do things that no other living being can do. But our stories can also trap us and support justifications or behaviors that can harm and damage ourselves or one another. We have to question our own stories while seeing the unique power storytelling has to influence outcomes. It's thinking about the strong focus on outcomes that Bridget's work requires, which leads me down the path of another important element fundamental to change, which is mental health and well-being. Bridget's responsibilities also cover family and child services, whose employees experience intense situations daily and are often witnessing incredibly emotionally challenging situations that need to be unpacked and managed. And I want to learn from Bridget how she supports these employees in managing just that. In child protection, you have um, amazing opportunities for, you know, great outcomes, but but there's also, you know, lots of challenges and, and lots of, you know, lots of really um, confronting things that, that, that you face into as part of that, as part of that work um, with children and families. So it, it does, it does impact on, um, on our employees and it impacts on the team and, you know, part of that sort of wider organisational system. And there's lots of research around resilience, the importance of resilience, and you should hire people who have resilience. And I mean, that's, that's interesting. But, but for me, I, I try and bring it back to something, you know, a little more simple because you can hire someone, someone with resilience, but when they're facing into a particular situation, it doesn't mean they'll be resilient. So for, for us, it's been about how do we set up programs that help people refuel, that help people when they've been confronted by something that's really challenging, that brings them down, how do we help them get back up again? and refuel and keep going. And that for me is the epitome of resilience. So there's a few different things, but some of the most important things has been about working with our leaders to recognise when, you know, people are coming off track. So again, it's about those deep relationships and awareness of the whole person, the people that work in your team and being aware of when something's not right and having the courage to sit down and have that conversation. And it just might be, are you okay? 
you know, how are you going? What's going on? Something's not right. Let's work through it. Let's understand. And really getting it early because if you can get it early, then that's the right time to be able to support the person um, and to help them refuel and to help them get back up again. A couple of the other things that we work through um, with our practice framework is sort of group supervision and individual supervision. So as a group, having the team come together and talk really openly about their cases and about how they're approaching it and sharing some of that, um, sharing some of the load, but also sharing some of the, the advice and the best practice and what have other people done. And that's a that's a great way at a team level, but also individual supervision. So that's fairly structured around, okay, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm doing. And that's really from a professional basis that, that you've got both of those constructs in place and that's part of our system. And they're really, really important. You know, and then supported by that intuitive, are you okay? That's really helpful. And now we're starting to set it up at a peer-to-peer -peer level as well through through a peer support structure. So having people in place who are trained in mental health first aid, who, who along with leaders can also be available to start to pick up on, you know, when things aren't right, you know, can, can start to see the triggers and to start to sort of diagnose sort of quite early when someone might need some help. And also to be the go-to people because you, you find that people are more likely to go to a peer and go yeah look I'm not coping well with that and training these people quite deeply around what they can do and, and they're not counsellors it's not about trying to resolve the issue but it is about trying to say okay you're not feeling great so what are your options what can you do and connecting them with people who can um, actually help them yeah. so that's that's a lot of the basic sort of cultural things we're trying to put in that's place cool. And, you know, and we've got a long way to go. I mean, we, we've got some of the foundational things there, but we've still got a lot of work to do. I think some of the other things are around where you where you work in a high risk area, where you might be dealing with some of the more confronting cases, is you know having wellness checks and really having those formal independent checks where someone can sit down with a qualified third party and talk about how they're feeling. And, and that's a whole of person check. So part of that's physical, part of that's mental. And we're talking about work, we're talking about home, where are you at? And doing that in those areas a couple of times a year. So people really have that opportunity yeah. to check in with a professional. That's really key. Having someone um, also in, you know, we, we've got a call centre, you know, that, that, that take all the initial complaints and that can be quite confronting because it's relentless. That's, you know, that's where you're hearing about, um, you know, all of the potential issues and you're like a referral service. Um, so having someone on site, you know, and available and accessible, we found has been, you know, really helpful as well. Because if I'm starting to feel like I'm not coping, I book in and I go and have a chat with someone and I do and I have a debrief process, which which really seems to sort of help. It's so great to talk to you because like yeah. I said, I think because you can speak from an acute place that we can all learn. And when I heard number one was any employer looking mm. and saying, are do we have those higher risks? We just know that job comes with yeah. a higher capacity. And then there's the more proactive reaching out and checking in. But I think the other piece you mentioned, and it's funny because I see this also in the mental, my wife's a therapist and they do that. They get together and talk about mm. their cases. I don't see as much, I think we can leverage more of that and breaking out of this hierarchical that the manager or the person above is supposed to answer it and the power of the peer, like setting up safe spaces, peer groups, because there's so much we can do for each other by just simply being seen and being heard and holding that space yes. that may tease out the idea. And then you go, oh, gosh, I should reach out for some support that it might not have clicked because you had somebody to talk to about it. That's and right. if we can build more of those spaces in all of our organizations and really tap the whole 
um, and breaking out of this idea of hierarchical or the person above supposed to know versus we have collective wisdom. Yeah. And I don't know that we're really, yeah. and you're, you're needing to lean into that because of the situation. But I think all of our organizations can learn from that. And look, it certainly, it certainly helps, Craig, it certainly helps break some of that, um, you know, because it's really hard coming out and saying, I've got a mental health issue or I'm not feeling confident or I'm not feeling well. I mean, there's still a certain stigma that, that exists around, you know, having that. I mean, it's really easy to say I've broken my arm and it's in a cast and people yeah. are really clear on what that means. There's a lot of stigma. Right. But, you know, and there's also lots of perspectives around if you have a mental health issue, you can't actually perform or do a job. Whereas I've worked with some really amazing people with um, all sorts of conditions who've of been incredible. So it, it, it also, I think, bringing it into that peer you know, forum sort of helps break down some of that stigma because everyone's feeling it. I mean, in this sort of, of space, um, there's not been a person I've met who hasn't been influenced or impacted by what they see, what they do and and who they support. So at a point in time, they need that safe place just to go, oh, okay, all right, I need I need someone to connect with on this or I'm not feeling great about this. And I, and I do believe that that peer space is a really safe place to do that. Again, I could go all the way down this path. The last question is just, you know, gosh, with everything going on uh, in the world, which is impacting all of us, even though you're 30,000 people last weekend, which still blows my mind. But globally, we're all impacted. What are your predictions? What are your thoughts? What are you thinking? What are, you, what are your predictions around what's going to shift or change or what do you expect next? The last 12 months have been incredibly agonizing and heartbreaking but at the same time, you know, from an organisational perspective, have shifted mindset, have driven huge innovation in how we um, provide a service or connect or interact with people, have forced us to really consider how do you set up an inclusive workplace and culture when you're not together face-to-face. -to -face. So, I think coming out of this is a much deeper sense of organisational empathy. And I think this is becoming a real movement. I've had leaders talking to me now around in the last 12 months, they've been forced to understand and connect more with their employees because they've met their dog and their cat and God knows what else on um, teams you know, or in the virtual world that they now know a lot more about their, their employees. So they've gone, I now see the benefit of those deeper relationships. So there's certainly some shifting in mindset and that's changing the way I think leaders leaders behave and connect. I think also culturally that that whole shift around flexibility and some of those more um, conservative cons organisational constructs around you need to be in the one place or, you know, sort of how we come together. I, I see this wonderful sort of shifting dynamic around, you know, how people work flexibly together and how we come together with purpose, you know, and how we come to, together with purpose, it might be to learn, to design, to collaborate. So, so I think organisational systems and culture are now shifting to really build around, you know, some of those more purposeful uh, interactions. It's also changing um, the need for leadership capability. So how do you manage a more dispersed team, but still keep people together, focused on a purpose, you know, and, and delivering um, a, particular, a particular service? Look, the other thing I'm really excited about is is tech. Now, I'm not necessarily a natural technician myself, but I'm passionate about how do we digitise, how do we make things more accessible, um, and in the government space, how do we open it up for our families so that they tell their story once? 
you know they don't have to tell their story 15 times to 15 different people to get 15 different types of service and we can do that through amazing interactive technology so I'm, I'm seeing and really excited about um, you know the opportunity we have for innovation um, around that so well put Bridget you're so succinct you really hit these points and um, there's there's been so much I think even that last organizational empathy I mean I held on to that term but you said so many different things that I think were really powerful and just glad you're in the world doing this work Honestly, it's as I've gotten to know you, we we need you and we need more people like you. And hopefully, you know, I, I, I judge that you're probably helping develop others. And I think that's great. Are you ready to move into the uh, flash question round? Let's do it, Craig. Let's do it. First question. New emergent theme for you in this past year? Learning how to use technology. Hmm. Okay. Biggest challenge for you? Yeah, not talking so much, which I tend to do face to face. So I'm trying to keep it short and sharp on tech. Uh, one thing you would say if you had every manager in the world sitting in front of you and you're on stage one key point you would say to every manager in the world listen listen Listen. more Uh, we hit on this earlier but I'm going to be more specific music particular music that has impacted your life so when I say is there a band an artist a song that first comes to mind when I say music that's impacted your life Midnight Oil. So um, they're an Australian band. Uh, Not only do they have a great, unique style, they're a social um, platform and and especially passionate around our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, our First Nation people, and trying to have, um, you know, them recognised within our constitution. So really passionate about um, what they do. They're environmentalists. So yeah, they do. They do stand for something. I love them. That's great. To Americans, I think most Americans just... How can we sleep when our beds are burning? That was a big big tune here. Um, They haven't had as much much success, but Australians, I love it. I'm going to go listen to some more. If you could take a vacation anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Scotland. Why? Uh, My parents are from there. So um, I've got family on a farm and um, I'd love to go home. It'd be great. Yeah. All right. That's great. Book recommendation. Uh, Look, anything Jane Austen. Right, so uh, big fan of the Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, I know. I've got the punk rock on one side, so I've got the Violent Femmes going, and I'm reading Pride and Prejudice. It's great and quilt. escapism. It's, I, I think you you are. A, I do it. I quilt. I quilt as you well. You are a, what's it was a Renaissance woman. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great, and I think it's important to call that out. Just because you like punk rock doesn't mean you can't enjoy these other things. Uh, podcast recommendation. Oh, anything by, and I'm going to forget his name. David Tennant. So any podcast by David Tennant. So he's a he's a British actor who played Doctor Who, but he's also a comedian. So incredibly um, funny and again, great escapism. Awesome. Uh, what's your superpower? Oh well, I wish I wish I had one. Um, oh come on! I, I'm, gonna, I'm I'm trying to make my superpower um, my ability to sit down and actually listen without interrupting. So I've been very focused on 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 that and actually sort of making sure people have got a voice how do you keep learning and growing from other people so connecting and talking to other people so that that for me is how i learn and grow and look taking risks i love jumping in and doing new things um so i don't think about it too much i just sort of jump in embrace it and get on with it and that's how i learn bridget that was my last question uh i just want to thank you so much i i you know, didn't know you coming into this. We spent very little time together and already I feel much closer to you and inspired by you and your work. 
thank you for being you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, and yeah, I'm really happy to, to have helped bring your voice to more people so they can hear and learn from you. Thanks, Craig. It's been an amazing session. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Humanity Works is hosted by me, Craig Foreman. Produced and edited by Alessia Campagna with technical production by Anthony Watson. And a special thanks to our executive producers, Leonie Rothwell and Marcus Worrell. To activate a world of powerful potential, visit Sprouta.com. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And together, we founded Sprouta. If you love our Humanity Works podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen. We can't wait to bring you more stories of amazing people doing amazing things in people performance and culture.